probably weren't always the traditional conventional naval officer things. It was more about the way they treated people, the way they engaged with people, the way they listened, the way they communicated, the way they adjusted according to the audience in which they actually had. The people I most identified were those who didn't lean on their rank for leadership, but leaned on the skills and experiences that they learned on along the way. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. My guest today is Mark Cooper, who served in the Royal Australian Navy as a seaman officer and also a cryptologic intelligence officer for over 20 years. That includes service with the United States Navy and operational service in Bougainville. On leaving full-time service, Mark has worked across a variety of roles from executive leadership all the way through to business owner and partnerships in four highly successful Australian startup companies. Those companies have delivered software development, project management services, as well as management and leadership consulting. I was fascinated to talk to Mark about his approach to all matters of business because it's less about the academic theory and more about practical, pragmatic experience to develop through successful, outcome-focused delivery. It was great to catch up with Mark and unpack his experience and insights on leadership that were founded in his Navy career. Let's jump right in. Well, Mark Cooper, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show, mate. Thanks very much, Martin. A real pleasure to be here. Yeah, look, question I always ask my guests up first is, of course, how did they end up joining the service? Yeah. And in your case, the Royal Australian Navy. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I replayed a couple of your recent uh, broadcasts and picked up on this question because I was quite interested as whether mine was going to be anywhere near as interesting as some of the others. Mine was literally, I was living in Port Hedland, Western Australia. Loving living up there, 15 years of age, but having some struggles at home, probably uh, conforming, etc. And along came defence recruiting and they said, would you like a job? And the rest is kind of history. Mm. I just wanted to get out of home. Uh, sad, but true. Yeah. And get on with uh, life. So leaving from Port Hedland right across to WA, mm. uh, sorry, right across to Jarvis Bay was a big move. Yeah. And to start. And when I got there and realised so many of my colleagues actually all knew something about the Navy, I felt quite embarrassed because I didn't know really much about what I had signed up for. But that didn't mean I, I didn't embrace it once we got there and absolutely enjoy it since then. Yeah. So thinking back to that time, who were your leadership heroes, influences growing up, you know, early in your military career or even prior to joining the Navy? Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think probably... It was fantastic to be able to join an organisation at an age of 15 or 16, as many of us did, and get pretty much pushed into some leadership roles very, very early up, albeit safe hands, in which we did it. There were individuals at college days that I looked up to enormously. A gentleman by the name of Daryl Bates, who very early in my time I uh, I connected with and looked up to his leadership style. And then there were actually many of the senior sailors who 
whose names I've never, ever forgotten, Mick Carney, Wayne Roots, and a number of others. And then there was one especially powerful who was one of my divisional officers at the same time, a guy called John Mackery. I would say that they would be four significant influences in my early days in the Navy. There was a lady by the name of Ros Kiesel who also came along probably year two, three. And again, I looked up to her as uh, she came along and bought a new lens to the mm. way we did our training. Mm. But it was funny. It was also looking around you to many of your colleagues as well. There was a lot of inspiration to be gained because we'd all come in pretty raw. Mm. But you watched. If you stopped, looked and listened, you could pick up some early, really outstanding behaviours of future leaders. And it's funny to watch some of those people at 15 and 16 and see where they've grown to in their careers since then. Mm. I'm sure a lot of it was unconscious, Mm -hmm. but some of the leaders that have gone on to make successful careers have never, ever surprised me. You could see they had many of the great traits way back then. Mm. So yeah, that was my early days. And then Mm. look, I had a patrol boat CEO a little bit later on, I had a terrific, um, when I went and did my bridge watch keeping ticket, a gentleman by the name of Mike Stock, mm. who I thought was uh, fantastic as well. And I think probably a gentleman by the name of Russ Crane, who was actually only a commander when I first met him, mm. and his his approach to leadership, which was very unconventional, if I might add, at the time inspired me. And I think mm. that was probably... That was probably a good style in which I identified with mm. people who weren't just purist officers, but really, really good, sound people mm. were probably my best examples. Yeah. What were the kind of things that you think you absorbed back then from people like the Daryl Bates and Carnies and et cetera? Yeah, yeah. Well, the things that probably stood out the most, Martin, probably weren't always the traditional conventional naval officer things. It was more about Mm. the way they treated people, the way they engaged with people, Mm. the way they listened, the way they communicated, the way they, you know, they adjusted according to the audience in which they actually had. The people I most identified were those who didn't lean on their rank Mm. for leadership, but leaned on you know, the skills and experiences that they learned on along the way. Mm. And I think that's probably something that I've taken on in my career journey ever since. And there's one story that identifies very, very well with that in my 22 years in the commercial world ever since. And that is whenever I'm employing an executive for, you know, one of the companies I'm working with, We'll always go out to lunch, and the thing that I observe most of all is how they treat the staff Mm -hmm. at the restaurant that are waiting on us. Yes. Because that actually tells me a lot about their values, Mm. and that ultimately is, you know, there's plenty of very, very clever people out there in in the marketplace today and in the working world, but it's it's back to those really basic values that, that I guess I got from my parents, but which I didn't really appreciate at the time but also from those early career in the Navy. So, yeah, mm. that's probably mm. probably the best of the grounding. Yeah. I mean, people just don't remember sort of the fact that you were a certain rank and, you know, there's little capital to be gained, isn't there, in just sort of throwing your weight around because you have a certain position. Oh, 100%, absolutely. And I think 
The thing that I noticed the first year that I got out of the Navy, and I often ponder this matter, is that I walked in at 37 years of age with the company that I joined, and I was given quite a senior position. And we went to one of our first strategy sessions within a week, and the best idea came from a young girl who was 21 years of age. And I realized all of a sudden there that you were on your own merits and your own performance. Mm. And what you'd achieved in the past was in no case a reflection of how good you were going to be mm. and the weight of uh, that you would carry in the conversation. So I found that really humbling. Mm-hmm. I found that really a good thing. And if you like it, and it was probably one of the things that I struggled with at time in the Navy the further we got along was at times you were only allowed to, and this was a feeling, operate at the level of your rank, Yes. even if you had better ideas. So I'm not one bit critical of my naval career. I absolutely love every, every moment of it. Mm. But I found that a tribe in which everything's on merit Mm. was a place that I really enjoyed landing yes. and then working in from then on. Yeah. doesn't mean we didn't have tough times, but, mm. but it was certainly a better landing place for me. Yeah. I think my own observations would be fair to say that there, you know, every organisation potentially has a pocket of uh, where it's on the merit, the ability to actually be inclusive of all people. There are also plenty of places across the board, both in public and private sector, where your position and authority is what determines your intelligence, allegedly. 100%. In that culture, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you're going to say something? Yeah, no, 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 I'd agree with that 100%. And probably probably it's funny, and this is quite an introspective thought bubble as well, but back when we were back at 15 and 16 at the Naval College days, and I look back on what was a pretty tough, rough and ready culture in which we were at. We were like we were at a private boarding school and an all-boys boarding school because the ladies only started to come in at that stage in life. So it was tough. It was a tough ground in which to be raised. A lot of things that I noticed happened then would probably have suppressed a lot of the people that eventually went on during our generation and not necessarily found them the right career. Hmm. Having said that, what has really brought me a lot of joy when I've been watching from the outside in since I left the Navy 23 years ago now is that those quieter people, but clever people, quite humble people, not always listening to their own voice, they are the ones that have risen through the ranks, which means that, you know, again, societally, we've all matured. Mm. and the best of leadership ultimately is bubbling to the top, so that's a good story to tell. Yeah, absolutely. So just over 21 years uh, full-time service in the Navy and a career in two parts, sort of part one was as a a maritime, what we call a maritime warfare officer now, and the second part sort of in intelligence, sort of what were the highlights of those sort of parts of your career there in full-time service? Yeah, well, look, I was simply a seaman officer, and maybe that's what they call it now. I didn't go on and do my PWO course at the time. And the second part was the intelligence. And I was, I had an opportunity in 1987 to go and take over. I was a young subby to take over from a lieutenant commander out at um, Woomera, and family was pretty important to me at that stage, or well, as it's always remained. 
but I had a chance to go out there and lead in a role where we were looking after the naval side of things in early warning for the United States Space Command. I literally went there to take that job and it was an opportunity as a young junior officer to, to, to step into a lieutenant commander's job. In other words, a lot of other people, Woomera is a fair way from the ocean, so I can understand <laughs> why not too many people were interested. Mm. I learned so much there and I got to work with some fantastic people out of United States Space Command and play in some frontline roles that were, well, again, probably can't talk about a lot of it today, but they were so insightful and exciting and, you know, really drove a lot of energy. That saw me find a way into a career in the intelligence. And I think I picked up a couple of good mentors along the way during that period too. A gentleman by the name of James Armstrong, who had come out of the British Navy, he'd also been a spy during the early years mm. of Cold War. And I, again, probably that age, I was 26 years of age and loved good spy novels and murder mysteries and all of that sort of stuff. And so it, it's where the energy took me. And before I knew it, four years later, I had a two-year exchange to the United States where I worked with the Pacific Fleet Command in cryptology and then spent probably the best part of the next six or seven years in there. And I was absolutely fascinated, mm. bringing a lot of it back to Australia at the end of the two years, working a lot with the Space Command and workup fleets for the second uh, campaign into Iraq and the Middle East, working with some absolutely leading edge leaders, if you like, in, in the Air Command within the United States, Space Command, etc. So yeah, I was very, very fortunate, and I would actually say I was the first one to break the probably the original mole, which was a lot of people who had come up through the ranks. Mm. So I was the first person out of the ranks to actually go into it. Mm. And oh, look, I had a—I cannot tell you what a fascinating and career it was. And if I could tell half the stories mm. and what you could learn through those things, you know, it would make a book, good book, at the end of the day. <laughs> sure, but. Honestly, it was. I had a very, very colourful career. I would have gone very unmainstream compared to everybody else. But in going unmainstream, you get to see a lot of other things that people don't necessarily always see as well, mm. including my time with the US Navy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was very good. So, not going mainstream, what did you learn from that about yourself and I guess maybe also about leadership? Look, it's a good question again, Martin. I think I. You know, one thing I've learned about myself over the years is that you can never stop learning about yourself and developing the skill of self-awareness and looking at how you react, respond to all things that happen around your life, both personally and professionally. And I, I think one of the things that I liked most was when I was with this Pacific Space Command, I was very fortunate to do a six-week deployment on one of the aircraft carriers that was about to deploy to the Persian Gulf. And albeit I was responsible for the cryptology of the Pacific fleet at that time and the crew that was going there, I was nabbed by a young five-foot-eight admiral that was in charge of the entire task group for the whole six weeks he took me under his wing and he took me everywhere for the whole six weeks, probably because I wasn't, wasn't a threat to him because I was Australian and 
I got to see how he responded to everything, Hmm. how he responded to some of the most challenging leadership positions, how he responded to stress, how he responded to his crew when, you know, what I would have measured as high performing, he would have said was underperforming when they were trying to get 60 aircraft in the air at once and, you know, manage all the ships around them. So I found that extraordinary insightful, but particularly when he, his whole leadership style was about dumbing things down. It was about a calmness under pressure. It was about being measured in your decision making, mm. but it's, it was about being clear. It was about mm. knowing when to back down. It was about knowing when to push forward when nobody else would want to push forward. It was about a lot of confidence building, believing in yourself from a self-esteem perspective as well. Yeah, I learned all sorts of things, not only from observing him and the way he responded, but how his crew responded to his reactions. And I think uh, to this day, I would say that was probably the six best weeks of my naval career and most informing weeks. Mm. He never got it always right Mm. and he never got it always wrong. But he, he made decisions, moved on, adjusted if he needed to adjust, but he also didn't dwell in the doldrums of getting things wrong. Mm. And I think that's had a lot to do with probably informing my leadership style mm. since then as well. Yeah. Couldn't help but think while you were talking then sort of that's such a big call to identify six weeks that had such a profound impact. Mm. But that... I guess, principle of the fact that being calm, being measured, brings confidence by your own actions, that brings confidence around the people around you, that that nothing's too big a problem. But that's quite powerful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think actually, again, if you ever have the privilege of leadership bestowed upon you to the listeners out there, there are a lot of what I would consider to be baseline guidelines in which you should try to operate Mm. it doesn't mean you don't feel pressure just means that you step your way through pressure you don't panic your way through pressure Mm. and you know i've had a a couple of other fantastic experiences in my commercial world experience that i think almost even dwarf that experience into comparison but i've had the opportunity to draw on all of the things that i learned from that six weeks Mm. to ensure that the way I approached very, very challenging times, Mm. I'd like to believe was measured Mm. and did take into account a lot of those lessons I'd learned. Yeah. We know it doesn't go well all the time. What was one of those moments in your service career where it didn't go so well and what did you learn about it? In my service career, so (laughs) it's going to be an awful and it's a leadership lesson learnt as well. So one thing that never went well is when I was working at Space Command, a moment, something happened at Woomera at about 1.30am on a particular night when I was the shift commander. I wasn't actually in the room at the time and all my words all hell broke loose. And I walked back into the operations room, which I was in charge of, and all hell broke loose. And I had to, I had a very, very finite and a very small finite period in which I had to respond to that. 
and it had never broken loose like this at Woomera ever before. That I learnt since, and certainly we trained for it, but it never actually happened. Anyhow, I listened to a lot of the guidance that I've just been sharing with you. I followed my checklist, dealt with it, and then we were at that stage dealing predominantly with the Pentagon and places like Cheyenne Mountain and that to make a lot of these decisions. Anyhow, um, immediately after it all happened and we did slow everything down, the right decisions were made and everything, you know, the crisis was averted, if you want to call it that, called into the base commander and provided all the evidence something had gone wrong technically and et cetera, et cetera. And then at 6.30, after a whole investigation of four hours, he walked me in and sacked me. And I was sacked from a job that I had done damn well. And that really hurt because mm. I took a lot of pride in the way I'd resolved it and everything. And I always remember him saying to me at the time, Mark, I'm really sorry to do this, but you're cannon fodder in the eyes of them, their generals, quote unquote, and suck it up and come back and requalify and we'll be good again. And that was pretty bitter pill to swallow and pretty hard to take. But I think the thing that, the thing, you know, you now run forward another 30, 25 years, whatever it is. And, you know, the leadership lesson to take away from something like that is sometimes shit happens mm. and you just got to move on mm. rather than sit there and brood on it, get frustrated and get stressed by it, da, 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 da. Mm. Make a decision. It happened. You can't change it happening move on and I think that was a very powerful lesson so mm. yeah in a little book I've written on some of this sort of stuff that appears somewhere in there as one of those lessons don't hold on to things yeah excellent so you get to a point in your navy career and you think it's time to hang up the boots and transition to a career outside uh, what was the catalyst for the for that decision to leave uh, full-time service yeah, it was a really easy decision in the end. I did, in 1998, we did 10 months away. Hmm. Back and forth to Bougainville multiple times in support of peacekeeping and some of the withdrawal that was happening back then. I had three uh, young girls, all below the age of six, and we had a wedding to attend to. And all my girls were going to be bridesmaids. And the ship didn't look like it was going to make it back. And those things happen but once in a lifetime. Mm. And I had a really fantastic skipper who, who said to me at the time, Mark, we'll fly you ashore because I know it's important to you. And I had to eat some of my own dog food to excuse the French where I said no. I shouldn't get any more privilege than anybody else. Mm. So I'll um, take my chances along with everybody else that's probably got a good reason after 10 months away for that year to be home. Mm. We did make it home in time. We made it home with about 18 hours to spare. Right. And I did get to the wedding. and I, But that was the moment where I realised that I was lucky that happened. But to keep going back to sea was probably not for me. Mm. And and I was at a time when I was absolutely loving what I was doing. My career, because I had chosen not to be a mainstream warfare officer, was probably a lot more limited to others. And so if there was a time to make the break, that was it. Mm -hmm. And it was a pretty easy break. 
and was only, you know, I started started following Monday wherever I started at that particular time. And with I'm not one of these people who carries any negative baggage on pretty much anything in life. Mm. So, you know, I left a wonderful career behind me. That was it. Yeah, yeah. And learned a lot and believe that's been critical to much of my success since then. Yeah. You certainly learned a lot in your service career. Where did you go next? What was what was the transition like? Where What was that next step? Yeah, look, I had a, a few hard lessons during that time too. So I was I was moved into a job that I interviewed for where I was to be a project manager of a product called SAP mm. in the HR payroll space to deliver some of the biggest projects in Victoria. Two out of three of those things I knew nothing about, but the third thing was I did know a little bit about leadership and project management is a pretty logical extension of much of what we've had to do as as you know junior officers in comparison to your career. Mm. And it was a logical fit. I feel like I did a, a, a fantastic job in that job. But I remember at the end of year two, and after I delivered two of phenomenal projects in Victoria, my CEO calling me into his office and saying, hey, Mark, you did a very good job there. Well done, but you got a lot of work to do on your commercial acumen. Mm-hmm. And wow, I delivered these out of the park. We'd made some good money on them. And he came up with a comment like that. And that was the first time I realized how much more there was to learn about leadership, but leadership specifically in a business world. Yes. And I can honestly say, hand on heart today, that I spent the next, the best part of the next six years of actually really understanding what he meant by business acumen. Mm. And I, I actually a coach in that space nowadays. But yeah, he was right, firstly. Mm. Secondly, there was a lot to learn. And realistically, the only way to learn that is to get in and get it wrong, mm. get your hands dirty mm. and learn. So, you know, mm. so that was a good transition and I learned a lot and I eventually ran all of the projects for that. I was the general manager of operations for that company mm. for the next uh, three or four years. Mm. So that business acumen is so important, I guess, in the commercial world and I guess for those that are have always been in that world or transitioning from the military. Is it just the school of hard knocks that teaches you business acumen or is there other things that you can do to give you that leverage and, and step up? Oh, look, there's, there's many other things that will give you the academic insights, but the school of hard knocks is going to be what accelerates it. Mm. So you've got to get things wrong and, you know, and you've got to, you know, one thing that the, the military taught me really, really well was all about good values, good behaviours, mm. the value of trust, integrity, and all of those things that you and I just take naturally. Mm. Commercial worlds will all talk that, but they don't necessarily walk it with the same spirit in, in which it means to you and to myself and mm. to many others that you've been interviewing. The second thing is, you know, commercially knowing how to negotiate, knowing how to really influence multiple stakeholders with multiple different business interests takes a long time to actually learn and get it wrong. Mm. Mm. 
and and I guess what you're doing the whole time is honing your skill in those spaces that I'd have to say we never really learnt at all in the military to the same extent. Mm. Again, we could always lean back on where we sat in the pecking order and the roles and what went with our role instruction. Mm. But it certainly wasn't the same in the commercial world. So can you accelerate it? Absolutely, with things like, you know, company directors courses and PMI courses, et cetera. Mm. You can accelerate all of that, but it's the school of hired knocks that teaches it. Mm. But the thing that helps you galvanize it came from all your training in the military. Mm. So the thing that actually helps you sort out what is really right here and what is really wrong here, I have to say then the Navy kept me on the right side of values Mm. throughout my commercial career, to be honest with you. Yeah. So what I'm hearing then is that it's actually that integrity with core values that actually is really critical as a foundation for that. A hundred percent. And and staying true to that, I'm coming up to, you know, some semi-retiring years now as you're aware and being able to get out at the end of it all and say, you know what, I I stayed true to my values Mm. because I don't know that a lot of people can always say that Mm. in the real hard customer-facing, particularly in growing and establishing businesses, can always say that. They're often put in positions of compromise when it comes to company profits or otherwise, particularly the further you get through seniority. And that's not a criticism at all because I've had to learn a lot about that, but you're absolutely right. I think my real foundations came from a military career mm. and my real foundations also came from my upbringing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so important. You get the entrepreneurial bug after some time working for others. And since then, you've been involved in six startups. What's it been like being an entrepreneur, sort of uh, freewheeling, looking for that opportunity, that gap? Yeah, thanks for that question. But I'm going to correct you on one thing. Right. I would never describe myself as an entrepreneur. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm a person that's, yes, been in six startups and started them from ground up. I actually don't like the word entrepreneur because I think it it ends up trying to excuse a lot of people away from, you know, why they did what they did Mm -hmm. and sometimes cutting corners, etc. But I'm still pleased you asked the question because the startup world which I've been involved in actually played out to who I think I really am. I wasn't really the best conformist to things that I believe were cutting too many corners or not doing things right mm. or mm. or un, under you know underscoring the value set that you had. Mm. So the only way I could control all that was to actually invest in if you like yourself mm-hmm. and companies or business ideals or whatever that you believed in and then put your money where your mouth is, Mm. stand behind them and grow them. And, Mm. you know, all but one of the six has been successful. Some have been better than others. Some I've had my um, heart in my mouth at various points in time and lots and lots of credit during the early stages on credit cards to meet people's payroll, etc. 
but I've learned through them all. And even when I had even some of those toughest times, I come back to some of those early lessons that I learned back in my military career mm. that have kept me, you know, no matter how much, don't panic, stay measured, da-da-da, all those things we talked about earlier. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty It's pretty solid, isn't it, when you think about sort of you're taking some personal risk there and it's sort of you've got to invest in, I guess, those skills that you have and and be, I guess, rely on them, haven't you? Yeah. You've got to trust yourself with it all. Mm. And there's one fantastic thing I learnt as a young cadet midshipman right through my naval career that I love today and I, it sits as a, a value above all others when I'm in a leadership role and that is the difference between accountability and responsibility. Everybody uses the word responsibility and to me that's a nebulous word. I'm interested in working with people that take accountability for what it is that they say they'll do and then deliver on that. Mm. And if they come up short, hold the hand up, get some help, da-da-da. Mm. But accountability is the critical component. Navy taught us that more than anything else, mm. particularly as, as, as young officers. So if you've been given it, then you do everything you can to deliver it mm. and don't come up. Responsibility gives people reason to create excuses for why something's not happening. Mm. Accountability says there's no room for excuses. If things fall over, okay, that's a different matter. Mm. But it's been really important and it's been, it's been actually almost a core fundamental stone of everything I've done in the 22 years since getting out of the military. Yeah. It seems like we need to actually take stock sometimes of actually what we've learned and where we've come from and, and the lessons we learned along the way. I mean, here we are, you know, sort of at the other end of the scale, but, you know, along the way it's, it's worth paying attention to to what we've actually got, where, where we had investment, what gifts we've been given in terms of opportunities. Oh, spot on, Martin. And I was once asked, I'd ran a program about 12 years ago up in Singapore for a, uh, a tier one customer where I was asked to, for 12 months, to go up every month to spend a day with some of the future le uh, leaders of this particular company. And at the end of the course, they actually all printed, a, they all participated and wrote a small book, which I had published for them about leadership and, you know, what it means to them and mm. what they've learnt along the way. But one of the great things about all of that was at the end of it all, they said, Mark, would you mind coming back and telling us, you know, what have been the most profound leadership things that you've learnt over it? And I went away and I thought, oh, yeah, that's pretty straightforward to do. And, and I went away and gave it a lot of attention to do it. And I would say that three quarters of the list that I had is probably not what you'd learn at university. Mm -hmm. Three quarter that th of that three quarters, most of it I learned through my naval experience mm -hmm. in my short career compared to people like yourself. And it comes back down to simple things like I, you know, I said to you earlier, you know, sometimes shit happens, get over it. Another one is go slow to go fast, be very considered in your decision making. Mm. One of the greatest leaders that I believe in my time that I looked up to from a military perspective was General Powell mm. and his 13 lessons of leadership. Mm. And for any of your listeners here today, mm. I would encourage them to go and listen to them because they're not big, profound statements. Mm. They are just simple mm. motherhood statements 
mm. that he probably learnt when he was a kid mm. that he carried through his entire career. So you don't get there for something that's profound, but if he said those 12, 13, I'm not sure what it is, were his lessons. And if you want them to really stick and have a really resonate with you, find where they are on the internet mm. and play them with the music on the slide pack that he's created. Mm -hmm. So the slide pack's got no pictures. It's just got the single lesson and you listen to that single sentence and then you move on to the next one. And he doesn't actually talk it. He just puts it on the screen. Mm. So again, it's profound because of its simplicity. Mm. So, and, and I think that's probably something else. So when I played all this back to the, the group I was, again, as I said, most of it's come from, you know, I wouldn't have read it in a book. It's the stuff that you've learnt along the way. And mm. the military career, you know, carved a lot of that in us. Yeah. It's often people go searching for something like the latest thing in leadership, but I don't know about your experience, but certainly mine has been that actually there's not much new we just actually got to go back to the basics along the lines of Colin Powell's 13 Lessons of Leadership that keep it simple. Absolutely keep it simple. And mm. yeah, no, no, never a truer word was spoken. And I think actually in things like leadership as against management, and I think there's becoming less and less leadership even in the commercial world today, go right back to the basics. Mm. Don't look to find something, as I said, that's profound, mm. the simplicity is in a few other people that have tread, mm. trod this earth well before us in leadership roles yeah. are able to leave behind as, as guidance. Mm. I want to circle back to the startups. Um, you mentioned that one didn't go so well. What did you learn out of that? Yeah, look, that was, uh, that was quite a profound moment. And it, well, thankfully, it wasn't at my expense in the end. I was only a uh, about a 14% shareholder of that company. But I was in that company with a another gentleman whose name's not important who who owned the other 85 plus percent. And he owned, I think, four other companies. And I really looked up to him and all of his staff looked up to him. He was a, a lovely guy, very, very influential, had come through the big six type organizations and really knew what he was talking about. His teamwork amongst those that worked for him was fantastic. Mm. But he probably at that point got a little bit ahead of himself and he had an opportunity to start another company with the Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. Yes, the man that you've all seen in the movie, the original Jordan Belfort, after he had finished his time in US prison. And I think. He got caught up in the enthusiasm of all of that mm. and mismanaged his financials at that time and progressively leaned on one business after another business to help him recover. So it was like a credit card paying down another credit card, paying down another credit card until he basically lost all of his businesses, mm. which was real shame because he's a tremendous gentleman. But I don't know whether you've experienced it as much as I have in the commercial world, but you don't really get a measure of somebody until you see them under enormous stress. Mm. Anyone can be a good leader in peacetime yes. or when a company is going well, but when it's under stress. Mm. And so we got to see probably the worst of him 
And yes, I did lose my business, but it's there are a few lessons that come out of that. Uh, you know, a leopard doesn't change its spots. Mm-hmm. It's probably one of those. But most of all, it was it was that insight of watching a great man crumble, not ask for help, mm. and many, many, many people were fall out from that exercise. Mm. So again, I lost nothing out of it other than probably a good good mateship along the way. Mm. But you know, it was it was a big lesson for me to watch in from the outside. Yeah. Since leaving Navy and as part of the some of the startups you've had and that those that are particularly focused on leadership and you actually wrote a book with somebody you mentioned as a I guess a hero of leadership, Daryl Bates which is called You Can Lead. Sort of tell us about the book and what was the catalyst behind that? Yeah, look, I was probably, I said to you that when I worked with Daryl when I was 16, 17, I looked up to him. Mm. I tracked him through his career. We stayed as friends throughout his entire, and it was a very, very profound career in my view Mm. for him. And then when he eventually came around to thinking about retiring, we thought we could do something together. Mm -hmm. And part of that was once we started doing some stuff together through our own uh, leadership organisation, we decided to write a book. Mm. And again, the book is to most people that would read it, they would say, well, wow, I'm not learning a lot of new stuff here. Mm. But it's, I believe its value comes in in being raw and honest with many of the mistakes you make along the way mm. and owning them and then saying, it's trying to say to people, it doesn't matter what level you've risen to, we've all had to make our mistakes. Mm. We've all had to back our confidence. And it's, it's, it's full of a lot of tips and tricks in which, you know, I guess they're things that we've reflected on that helped us navigate our various careers, whether it was in the military or whether it was out of the military. Mm. The whole premise of it all is it's saying to anybody out there that you can lead Mm. and you don't have to be a certain rank. Mm. You don't have to have a certain position. You can lead and there's some, it's about giving them the confidence to leave because they can learn from many of our hard lessons. It's about giving them the belief in themselves, the circumstances, and some tips and tricks if they find themselves in really tough circumstances that they can lean back on that says, ah, there's some normalcy in this. I'm not the first person to have done this before. Mm. Yeah, so I'm really happy at it. It was pitched at a very very unacademic level. It was just a bunch of stories Mm. together, but the stories are grounded in both good research as well as good experience. Yeah. And Daryl and I divided the chapters and, you know, I think it complements all the way through. Mm. Yeah. His was better in English the first time around. Mine was probably needed somebody to go through and spell check for me. (laughs) There you go. I seem to recall that English wasn't your strong subject back at the Noble College somehow. Uh, that's that's very fair, and I still don't think it's my strong subject, Marty. <laughs> but I don't care now. <laughs> no, that's right. It didn't have an impact on where you got to, did it? No, 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 not at all. no, no. Well, Mark's been fantastic to catch up uh, in this podcast and and share some of your story and 
you know, we could uh, obviously talk for a lot longer and I look forward to an opportunity to do that, uh, perhaps over a whiskey or wine somewhere in the future. I want to finish up with the rapid fire questions. And as I say to many, they're not always rapid fire answers. So, so here goes. So the first one is leadership is blank. Leadership is what? So if you can fill in the blank, leadership is? Absolute privilege. Awesome. Uh, what's your go-to book on leadership? Uh, go-to book on leadership, mastery probably would be. Mm. In other words, there's no shortcuts to outcomes. Mm-hmm. You've got to do the time. You've got to be prepared to do it. And, yeah, that's probably it. It's, it's probably one. Mm-hmm. That's only behind You Can Lead by Daryl mm-hmm. Bates and Mark Cooper. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Next question, I wish I'd known blank earlier in my career. I wish I had have known more about the value of my leadership learnings from both family and my early career. Mm. I wish I had known about that earlier in my career. In other words, you got to trip over your mistakes to realise actually I had learned about that before, but I had chosen to dismiss it. Mm. But now it's real. And guess what? Wow. It wasn't as profound. I just didn't listen earlier in my career. Yeah. The value of learning and self-awareness, I think. Absolutely. You get a call from a team member, crisis just erupted in your company. What are your first words to that person? Always, okay, let's slow it down and let's just talk through this and, you know, what it is that we need to do. But I'll always check in on them first. Mm-hmm. How are you, Mary? How are you, John? Mm-hmm. Et cetera, et cetera, to make sure they're okay. And then let's slow the whole thing down because there's never a crisis mm. that we can't work our way through. Yeah, awesome. And lastly, is there a go-to quote on leadership that's had influence on your career and leadership? Yes, and I use it all the time. And that is, there is no greater privilege in life than to lead, mm-hmm. full stop. Mm-hmm. And I'll often finish that afterwards with, so. You essentially don't aspire to something that you're not going to give it all. Mm, yeah, I like because that. Because there are so many people, there are so many people who are looking to you. Mm. Why would you want to waste that fantastic opportunity? Because it really is a privilege. Yeah. It goes to the heart, the fact that leadership being a privilege is that, no, it's not about you, it's actually about other people. And if you're not prepared to give it your all, then then don't aspire to it. Yeah, and, and there's too much experience in my time, particularly in the commercial world, where people get promoted into roles and it is about them and they forget that, you know, in that role now, there's so many more people now looking up to you for their life guidance. Mm. Are you really giving them your all? And I think, yeah, that's, that, that's what's behind that one sentence and the privilege that you've got. Well, Mark, thanks so much for giving up your time this afternoon to be on the podcast and go well in the future with your semi-retirement and uh, look forward to catching up sometime soon. Sounds good, Martin. Thank you very, very much for the opportunity to um, stuff. No, it's been great. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. 
And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.